The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to the program. Today you'll be hearing from several publicly traded companies that as part of their fiduciary duty to grow their shareholder base, have hired us to expose them to our audience for potential investment consideration. Before making an investment decision, I encourage you to do your own research on each company. All of our current sponsors are featured on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You can click through their banners or logos to their websites. We'll also speak to analysts on this program who will help to educate us and inform us as to what is happening in the financial world markets, etc. Let's begin the program. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. As part of his service, he provides insights as to when insiders are buying and selling and issues buy and sell recommendations based on his research. Dudley, welcome back to the program. Good to be here, Ellis. You know, you and I have been in this business for quite some time, Dudley, and we've been recommending in a variety of ways that people take advantage of depressed prices because they're here, and as a contrarian, the best time to get in is when everybody else is selling. But I have no reason to see, to believe that getting in anytime soon, at least before the end of the year, is a wise thing because we don't know, as Chubby Checker would say, how low it's going to go. <laughs> well, the last few days uh, have been pretty exciting for the gold market. And let's just say, nobody knows exactly where we're going. All we know is where we've been in life. Right now, I've got to believe we've clearly broken out of a big triangle up there. And one of the other analysts that we love to listen to from the big picture standpoint clearly has been seeing us several days ago break it into at least the 1500 range. And then, of course, you couple this scenario with tax law selling season as well. And it's like, holy smokes. I'm amazed even today here that a lot of the stocks are holding up the juniors and the exploration companies better than I would have expected with this significant pullback in gold over the last several days. Some of those could actually be approaching the bottom. So this time right now, it's going to test every investor. What do you believe is the future for gold and the gold stocks? And you have to decide that. You can listen to any analyst. You can follow me and my views, and I'm never going to be right all of the time. Nobody out there is going to be right all of the time. You have to decide, where do you think we're going to be, say, two to three years from today? 
And if you believe in a positive way that we're going to be substantially higher, like I do, this is a buying opportunity right in this vicinity. And yeah, maybe we wait several more days, another week or so. We could really go down even harder in the next week to 10 days. But what is this doing? To me, it's setting up better buying entries on a lot of our little stocks. And so just be patient. But you have to decide how you feel about these markets. You're losing money now, like a lot of people are. Those that aren't selling and those that are selling are losing money. But I hear a little bit of drooling for the buying opportunities that are on their way. Well, and I know it's a crazy thing. We'd all like to think if we buy a stock at 20 cents that we've hit the bottom, right? And it's going to go up tomorrow and never come back down again. Few of us are smart enough to know this. That 20 cent stock could drop back to 10 cents. And this is kind of what we're in the process here. This has been on balance a rough year just in total for all of the juniors and the exploration companies. I almost welcome what we're seeing right now because we need to break this log jam. In other words, it didn't look like we were just really ready to blast off with a lot of strength to the upside in gold and the stocks. We need this further cleansing. The one thing historically, just to do a little technical stuff on you here, some of the other analysts that I also like to follow look at a 65-week moving average for gold. That has usually contained the downside damage, and we bottomed really, really close to this, going all the way back to 2001 when we started this bull market. Right now, the 65-week moving average is coming across at about 15.26 on gold. We could easily go back to that 15.26. We could break it and just break right below the 15, just slightly below, get down in the 1400 range. But I don't think we're going to go substantially below that number. That's been a magnet out there for quite a long time. Again, I do put a positive spin on this. I've got, a, frankly, a relatively low cash position here at the moment, so not a lot of ammo to come back in, but building up a few resources here. But anybody that does have some cash, we're going to see some really great opportunities. Now, some of the stocks we've got, sure, I mean, you might say they're all down, but we're building an inventory. That's the way I like to phrase it, an inventory of good stocks, good companies, let's put it, that we're going to sell in a couple of years at substantially higher prices. Sure don't know what the hell's going to happen, you know, tomorrow or the next week or a couple of weeks, but convinced over the coming months and next few years that we are going to be the winners. I sleep well at night knowing this. If you got margin accounts, yes, this is scary for you. Myself, I've not done margin accounts in a long time, so if you've got a cash account, you don't like to see the balance go down, but you're not leveraged up, so to speak, and have to worry about getting a tap on the shoulder. So you really have to have some patience, but I am optimistic here. Well, Dudley, the website is PreciousMetalsWarrants.com, an S on the end of each of those words, PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. I've been speaking with Dudley Baker, the director, the proprietor, the analyst, the newsletter writer, and general good guy. Dudley, thanks a lot for joining us today on the program. Good to be here, Ellis. Thank you. And you can listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, EllisMartinReport.com. For more information, visit our website, EllisMartinReport.com. That's EllisMartinReport.com. Want to make money in resource stocks? Stay informed with Resource World Magazine, covering the latest developments in mining, oil, and gas and alternative energy. Subscribe now to save half off the newsstand price. Simply visit resourceworldmag.com or call 604-484-3800. Or pick up the latest edition at select book and magazine outlets. Resource World Magazine, your insight into the world of resource investment. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as ANLKY. That's ANLKY. 
The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program. Uh, hi, Alice. Nice to be with you again. Now, you've been on the road a great deal lately. What have you been doing? I've just spent nearly two weeks in Hong Kong. There were actually three conferences there. There was a Daiwa, the big Japanese investment bank, that had a conference where I was participating, followed by a mineral sands conference, zirconium titanium, and obviously because of our involvement in the zirconium industry, very important for us. And then followed up with a rare earth conference, which was very good also. Large attendances at both those two conferences, uh, 450 at the mineral sands conference, 350 at the rare earth conference. A lot of good information you now nowhere near the pessimism about the rare earth prices that the media seems to have jumped on it. The conference was very good in the sense that there was a far more optimism about the industry where it was going to go. But certainly prices are down, but they're still way, way above what they were even eight, nine months ago. So prices are still very strong and there was a great deal of optimism about where the industry was going to go. Speaking of zirconium and heavy rare earths, while you're on the road, your company released news about an ore reserve upgrade at Dubbo. Would you like to tell us about that? Basically, uh, what we've done is publish an upgraded reserve statement for the Dubbo Zirconia project. This is a very important step because reserves are a, a step above resources. Resources just define the material in the ground, whereas reserves mean that there's an economic imprint feasibility done on it. And so that 36 million tonnes that we've identified as open pitable reserves gives us at least a start-up or initial start-up mine life of 36 years. So it's a very important step with the project going forward. What is the potential revenue during that time period for the company? Substantial. Basically, the revenues are around about $500 million a year. So if you take $500 million and multiply it by 36, you get something like $18 billion revenue over that 36-year period. So it's a substantial project and substantial revenue generating capacities. You know, I sort of did the math before doing this interview, and quite honestly, I couldn't believe my eyes. Of course, it's not the actual profit. I mean, the cash flow out of that's about, well, it's $300 million a year cash flow, which then multiplied by 36, you get something like $10 billion a year cash flow over that 36 years. So, yeah, it still is a, a very, very substantial uh, return. That makes you a major player in any industry in Australia, correct? It does. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's certainly a major mining operation. And importantly for us, a very significant player in the zirconium industry and the heavier earth industry, which is you know, really where we've been targeting now for 15 years. When you're talking about that kind of revenue, what will you be doing with the money? It's a, it's, it's, a good, it's a good question, actually. I mean, we genuinely believe we can pay dividends. I mean, that's the board strategy. We've had it now for a number of years. We felt that when this project got up in production, that would be the capability. Again, once we've paid back all capital, facilities, etc., we're in a position to pay dividends, and major shareholders believe in that concept as well. So we genuinely believe we'll be a significant dividend-paying company. Now, you expect to be going into production with gold at the Tommingley Project in 2013. Let's talk about that. There's a process for approvals, an environmental impact statement. There's a process that the state goes through, and one of the final stages is that it goes on what they call public display or public exhibition. So for 28 days, that environmental statement or that environmental report is available to the public. People can look at it, they can comment, they can lodge objections. So it's an important part of the process. And once that 28-day period's up, if there are no substantial objections, the state then usually approves the project to go ahead. If there are significant issues, then we have to come back and address them and make sure that we comply again. And eventually that goes back to the state, who then decide, have we complied? Have we met all the new conditions? So we remain very confident the 
project has no other major environmental impacts, pretty confident we'll get the final go-ahead sometime in the new year. It may be February, March before we get that go-ahead, but at least this is a, another big step forward. Well, you've got a great deal of work to do between Double and Tomlinley with the jobs you're creating for these two projects and those teams. How are you handling the infrastructure of the company itself? Again, important thing. I mean, historically, we've run two development teams, one for the Gold Project, one for the Zirconia Project, and those two teams are intimately involved with taking it forward. Now, obviously, when you go from conceptual feasibility study through to construction, the whole thing changes. So Alcane, over the next six months, will go through a transition where we'll take on senior employees to take the Tomingley project through development and then into production and then obviously put on all the operating staff when we're ready to go. With Dubbo, we're still a good 12 months away from getting to that point where we can start proceeding. We've got to get the financing in place, the approvals in place, and that should be uh, the target for that's by the end of next year. Then Dubbo will go through that next transition. Fortunately, the area we operate is an area with a substantial existing workforce. I mean, it's a major agricultural region it also has a number of significant operating mines. So there is a good workforce that's already available and, and we don't really anticipate having difficulty getting the right people to, to run these projects. Now you mentioned financing. What kind of money do you need to get both these projects going? Are you going to the market for it or do you have other ways of raising the cash? With Tomingley, it's about $90 million Australian dollar capital cost. We have a $45 million facility on offer to us from Credit Suisse, the large international bank. The other $45 we'll have to raise and we're looking at the options of doing that and that probably will mean us going to the market at some stage to raise that 45 million. Now Dubbo said still 12 months out. The total capital for that was about 890 million but on that 890 there's something like 180 million of that is made up of contingencies and EPCMs add-on type things so we think the actual real number will be closer to 750 or 800 for that project going forward and right now there are a number of options available to us and one of them's a small strategic sell down of part of the project and we think we can do that with an escalator to NPV value. So the current model has an NPV of $1.2 billion. We think we could sell 10% for maybe $200 or $300 million. Then there's, interestingly, a, quite a large amount of funding available from government agencies. And these are certainly Japan, Korea, European countries now are really putting up loan facilities to ensure that those countries get access to these strategic metals and applies to both the zirconium and the rare earths. To a lesser extent, Niobium, no, but it's still important. There's substantial funds available from those sources as well. And then finally, again, just normal commercial debt and then equity. And we've tried to target ourselves to being fairly minimal impact as far as the equity market is concerned. And we're trying to minimise the uh, the impact on the equity side of the business and, and get all the other financing applications or components in first. Rare metal prices are a bit depressed at the moment, but over the long run, that's certainly most likely not going to be the case. We remain very positive about the business, the whole business, the zirconium business particularly. There'll certainly be a flat period now, maybe six months while we get through this latest financial situation. But as we go forward into the second half of 2012 and into 2013, we're very confident that the Zirconium price will continue to escalate. The rare earths, it'll go through a transition over the next four or five years when the big producers like Molycorp, Linus come on stream. Some of the bulk volume rare earths like Lanthanum, Cerium, they may well come down further in price. But the key ones, Neodymium and then the heavies, Dysprosium, Terbium, Yttrium, I those prices will remain strong for a long time. Unless the 
factors are going to major change in the supply chain over the next sort of 10, even to 20 years. So we remain very positive about this business and where we're going to be situated in it starting 2014. Once again, I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, President and Managing Director of Alkane Resources. Alkane trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the President of Apogee Silver Limited, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006 through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company, formerly Apex Silver. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of 18 cents and is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. Neil, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Why don't you introduce Apogee to our audience? Well, Apogee is a silver-based mining company listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol APE. And we're a silver-focused mining company with our main assets in Bolivia and Chile. We have three projects with Forward 43101 resources. The strategy is to develop our flagship project, which is Pulukaya Resource in southern Bolivia, and bring it into production in the near to medium term. And then from there, we'll grow the company. We've got a very strong base of shareholders, including called Lean Mines, who own just under 9% of the company. Spot Asset Management, really Eric Spots, Mr. Silver in the, in the industry as you know, and that company's got just over 18% of our company. And we're also supported by a number of other funds, including Pine Tree, Aberdeen, and the Chinese Mining United Fund, which is a group of three Chinese companies that also take an interest in us. And I think we've got a fairly favorable valuation compared to our other silver peers, silver producers. Now, you recently announced with regard to the Polakaya deposit, a 43-101 compliant resource of 29 million ounces indicated silver and 26 million ounces inferred. That's close to a potential $1.7 billion in resource, quite prolific. How advanced is this project? Well, we've just completed a rather large drilling program for that resource update, about 23,000 meters of drilling, and we're continuing our aggressive drilling program. It's an old historical mine that produced over 600 million ounces of silver between, I think it's 1883 and 1958. It was nationalized in 1958, and unfortunately, not a lot of money was spent on developing the infrastructure, so it closed around about the same time. And it's been closed ever since. We were fortunate enough to get hold of the company in 2006 and have been doing a lot of exploration. And I was brought onto the board as the CEO in June this year because of my mining background. I'm a mining engineer that specializes in building mines. I've got 17 odd years experience in Africa. I'm South African originally and South America, including Peru. And I took on this role because I had a look at the resource and I thought it was a really fantastic resource for taking forward into production. So our board is very supportive to me and we've basically got a strategy to take it into production on a large scale in 2015. But leading up to that, we'll be building a pilot plant of 400 tonnes per day during the course of next year. And we hope to have it commissioned by the end of next year. So we should see some early stage production from that, which will also be supporting our feasibility study for the larger mine. 
coming forward and it'll be generating early cash flow. So I think it's a very exciting story. Well, you've got $16 million in the bank. Will you be able to generate cash flow from early production to continue on with further exploration efforts in that area? Certainly, once we get the plant running and the mine running, we will be able to generate free cash flow from there to be able to continue our exploration. But we're still calculating the numbers and as part of our feasibility study, but I've got a vision of growing the mine to around about 8 million ounces per use per year, hopefully around 2015. That's subject to what comes out in the feasibility study. And to grow a mine that size, we'll obviously need to finance that and take it from there. With Sprott and Pine Tree and the others that you mentioned, that shouldn't be a problem, should you need to go back and obtain more capital down the road. Absolutely, and we're also looking at debt financing facility with the pension funds in Bolivia. Some people are concerned about Bolivia as an investment destination, and I think it would be really good if uh, we could reduce that sovereign risk by actually raising cash locally. And we were initially a little bit not concerned about whether this is really that feasible, but I've heard that Pan American Silver were able to raise $60 million for their mine, San Vicente, in Bolivia. We feel we were able to raise a fair amount of money that way. Well, it's not a done deal yet. It's something we're definitely looking at. Are you building a strategic relationship with the local government? Absolutely. We're actually partners with the government in this venture. The mines are all nationalized, so we have a lease agreement that gives us a hundred percent control of the asset for a two and a half percent royalty, which goes to Campanera Minera del Bolivia, which is a Bolivian state owned mining company. And then we also pay a one point five percent royalty. There's a total of four percent royalty for the rights to the property. And we have two partners, one of them being the government and the other one being the community. And I think that really helps us a lot because it's good to have your community on side when you're going through permitting processes and so on. Relationship with the community and the government is everything in that part of the world. And, you know, we take that very seriously to make sure we maintain good relations, healthy relations with the local communities. Often mining companies overlook these things and end up having problems with the communities. We've taken the stance that we want to develop this mine for Bolivians in Bolivia. So it's a Bolivian mine and people in the area must benefit. With a share price of 18 cents, how do you compare to your peers in the area? Tell us about your share structure as well, Neil. Our uh, market cap around 50, 55 million dollars at that price. We have just under 300 million shares outstanding and we have, as of October, I think we had 16 million dollars in cash. No debt. We do have some warrants outstanding. There are a few coming out uh, at 14 cents this month and then uh, we have a few more coming through in May next year. And what about valuation against your peers? Uh, there's three ways you can value a company like ours. One is on a NPV multiple, if you've got a life of mine plan or something like that, which we have. The other way is to do a cash flow comparable as a cash flow multiple. And third way is to compare the resources in the ground. And I'll start with that one. Our enterprise value is around about $50 million. Silver ounces in the ground is total ounces inferred and indicated together, including our properties in Chile, is $98 million. Uh, Ounces, so that brings you up to 80 cents per silver ounce on the ground, which is certainly a lot less than our peers. If you look at Silver Fortuna, we like to compare ourselves against Silver Fortuna, who've got a resource of around 90 million ounces. Their share price is currently $8.71, and the enterprise value per silver ounce is about $8. We're sort of at 50 cents to 80 cents. The multiples are significant. Obviously, they're in production. They're producing 1 to 2 million ounces of silver per year now. They've got two mines. We kind of smart ourselves on the same kind of business model that they had, which was, you know, start 
a smaller mine get going to start to produce cash flow and then grow that mine. So that's the same kind of model that we have. But I think once we get into production, we'll certainly see a significant uptick in enterprise value as we come into production. I've been speaking with Neil Ringdahl, president of Apogee Silver, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as A-G-E-E-F. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Hey, it's me, cool voice guy. Unless your brain is the size of a watermelon, like mine, you'd probably like to hear these segments again and again and again. Find us on the web at ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. If you listen to all of them, your mind will be saturated with money juice. That's what I call it. That's ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat leach operation. Scott, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much, Alice. As usual, it's a a pleasure to be here. Since we last spoke, you released news about your Phase 2 drilling program at La Jolla. Tell us about that. As you know, we completed the Phase 1 earlier this year and released a bunch of results on that. Our Phase 2 is underway. It's about a $3 million program that will obviously continue the extension of the mineralized zones that we've seen so far in Phase 1. We were really pleased with Phase 1. We're in the process of completing a NI43-101 resource estimate and, and technical report. And we hope to release that probably the first week in January. That will give us a, a resource on the Phase 1 area, which we will review and update as the drilling continues. Well, you expect some news to come out very soon then. This is not anything we're going to have to wait a month or two for. No, we shouldn't have to. The way we do those or the way we were allowed to do those is to make a press release on the resource numbers and then follow that up within, I think we have 45 days to file the report on CDAR. We want to try and keep those two events as close together as possible so that people can follow up on the information on the press release and see it in the report. And of course, the report gives you a much more detailed look at the nature of the resource and the grades and tonnages and those sorts of things. So we're hoping to have both of those done by the end of January. You're one of the few silver juniors that's performing extremely well in this downward trending market. Do you believe that it's because of the work you're doing in the ground at Santa Elena and La Jolla, or is it relative to the volatility with silver right now? I think the volatility of silver has a little bit to do with it, but I don't think as much as our operations at Santa Elena and the expectations building on the La Jolla. As a number of people know from our previous conversations, the Santa Elena production is going very well. We've reported on two quarters this year. Each has been better than the last, and our fourth quarter this year has been very, very good from a production point of view and from a profitability point of view. So I think people look at that as a stabilizing factor from our stock price perspective. We've got good solid cash flow. Next year should be a banner year for a number of reasons for us. 
we'll have a full year of production, and I think the gold and silver prices are going to hold up very well. So we have that stabilizing base, if you will, in, in terms of cash flow and production. And on the other side of things, the reporting that we've done on La Jolla to date has indicated that we may have our teeth into a sizable deposit that people are, in, you know, are sort of waiting in anticipation of further news on it. So I think the combination of those two things are the main reason for the resilience in our share prices. Your company seems that potentially it may be undervalued at the current share price near $2. I would certainly agree with that, Ellis. I think the $2 value reflects in part the value of Santa Elena in its current state. We have a sizable expansion program going on there that will double that production in the next two to three years. I think our current market price reflects at least the operations that we have there now. I don't think there's much built into that price in terms of that expansion plan. And I don't think there's very much built into the share price in terms of the potential for La Jolla. So the possibility of a serious upside move on our share price is very good. And that's reflected in the analysts that are covering us. Can't accord genuity. Their analyst has a target price, I think, of about 375 right now. And Jennings Capital, their analyst out of Toronto, has a target price of I believe it's $5 at this point. And those two target prices do give some value to La Jolla down the road. We haven't seen any huge inclines in the last two months. It's been more or less a gradual and steady uptick generally, even in a down market. You've headed up about 30 to 40%. Because the increase hasn't been an extreme spike, it would seem that the risk of a sharp decline would not be as strong. Wouldn't you agree? That would certainly be my sense, looking at the performance of the stock to date. We did make a substantial move, as you pointed out. It seems to be consolidating here nicely at, you know, between $1.90 and 220 And I think that's healthy from a going-forward perspective to have it move reasonably well, consolidate, and then make another move. And I think when we announce the result of our Phase 1 resource estimates and are able to articulate the potential based on those resources, uh, I think we'll see another upward move fairly quickly. What can we see for 2012 in general? 2012, from a corporate perspective, I think we'll have a very, very good year with Santa Elena in terms of production. We have everything working at an optimum rate right now. I think we've reached that steady state that is crucial in a heat leach operation to have your mine and crusher producing consistently and getting material on the pad for leaching. So we think our production will be consistent month over month for that year. Personally, I anticipate a fairly strong move in both silver and gold prices which will certainly improve our revenue stream. Next year, we have probably 20,000 ounces or thereabouts of gold that will go into the spot market, where this year we delivered a fair amount of our gold production into a hedge position that we have. So we've got a lot of room on the gold side to take advantage of spot markets that I think will be much higher than we're seeing right now. We'll be working on the expansion plan at Santa Elena. We'll be calling an underground decline. That'll get us a look at the deposit below the open pit and that'll give us a good sense of what kind of reserves and resources we can expect there. So Santa Elena will go along very nicely, create a a nice cash flow base for us, and we will be paid out of our debt. We'll have our hedge position on the gold reduced fairly dramatically for 2012. And of course, uh, all of our silver production is free to hit the spot market. The La Jolla project, we're approaching that very aggressively. We have a $3 million budget laid out for probably the first half of the year. We expect to drill 
drill about 80 holes in that period to define the main mineralized trend that we've identified there, plus get a feel for the three other targets that we've identified on that property. So next year will be an exciting one, both from a financial perspective for the company and from a growth of resources and reserves. Well, I definitely appreciate the update, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the near future. Thanks for joining us. Thanks once again, Alice. Scott Drever is the president of Silvercrest Mines, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL, and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Find a link to the Silvercrest website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. For more information, visit our website, ellismartinreport.com. That's ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a conversation with Lorne Waldman, the Corporate Secretary for Silvercore Metals Incorporated, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol SBM. Silvercore Metals is engaged in the acquisition, exploration, development, and mining of high-grade silver-related mineral properties in China and Canada. Silvercore is the largest primary silver producer in China through the operation of four silver-lead-zinc mines in the Ying Mining Camp in Henan Province. Lauren, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Alice. Good to be here. I understand you had a significant revenue increase of up to 71%, and additionally, you're offering another 25% increase to your shareholders. Let's talk about that. Sure. You know, first of all, you know, we're really uh, excited to be able to announce a dividend increase. We've increased the dividend by 25%. This is the third time in the course of the last five years that we've increased our dividends. And you know, we think it's really important to uh, reward our shareholders and the loyalty they've shown to us with the payment of dividends. But underlying all dividends, there has to be real earnings. And that's the important thing. And you know, we've had our quarterly analyst conference call where we uh, reviewed our uh, earnings for the last quarter. The earnings were very strong. Our net income was up 49% and our cash flow from operations was up 140%. So you know, those are the type of numbers that can allow you to support a growing dividend. Now, you predicted your revenue would grow, but how do you account for it? Well, you know, in this quarter, the revenue growth was partially due to increases in our production. Silver production was up, gold production was up, and you know, mashed them together on a silver equivalent basis, production was up 12%. Also, we are benefiting from stronger silver prices. Silver prices were up over 108% compared to this time last year. There are many investors who won't touch a company unless they're paying dividends, and you're actually doing it. Well, we are paying a very healthy dividend, and we've been paying dividends for five years, long before it was in vogue for resource companies to start paying dividends. We just think it's an important way to reward your shareholders. Yes, we focus on growth. We've demonstrated an excellent track record in growing our resources and our productions every year since we first began producing in uh, 2006. But that being said, besides growth, we do want to reward shareholders with dividends. What's next for Silvercorp in the coming year? Well, we have a lot of exciting growth opportunities coming up ahead. You know, one of the big projects we're working on, of course, is our new GC development property. We just commenced construction on that. The mine and mill should be completed around the end of June in 2012, and we'll be able to start ramping up production there. You know, in addition to that, you know, we recently acquired... The uh, XBG project, which is right near to our Ying mine, so we'll be able to be starting to get some production from there. And we have the new BYP project going. So, you know, we have a number of items in the pipeline which should allow us to continue to grow our production. 
as well as our resources. On the resource side, you know, in China alone, we have 241,000 meter drilling program that's currently ongoing this year. And so we're uh, looking forward to seeing some positive results from that drilling program. What's happening in North America, in Canada specifically? Well, in North America, we have our silver tip project. That's a silver lead zinc project in northern British Columbia. Right now, our focus there is on applying for a small mine permit, which would allow us to establish a 75,000 ton per year operation. But even before we get that going, we hope to be getting a bulk sample permit, which would allow us to mine at 60,000 tons per year. And that could start as early as, you know, within the next mining season, so as, as early as next June. The nice thing at the Silvertip project is a high-grade project. If you look at the resource, you know, you're looking at grades of around 400 grams per ton silver and around 18% lead zinc, but there's even higher-grade pockets closer to 700 grams per ton silver and 27% lead zinc. With those type of grades, you can ship it directly from the property to our mills in China, and it would still be very profitable. Speaking of profit, what do you intend on doing with your large treasury? You know, we have $176 million in cash and no long-term debt at the end of September. So we're basically using that to finance our existing capital expenditure plans, and so that includes things like building new tunnels at our existing Ying mining camp, also funding the development of the GC project, expanding BYP. In total, we have around $70 million of capital expenditures budgeted for the current fiscal year. In addition to that, a big part of Silvercorp's growth strategy is to grow through acquisitions, and so we're always looking for good, high-grade, underground, precious metal projects that we can bring into production quickly and with relatively limited capital. You've been trading on the New York Stock Exchange for a while, and your share price has been recovering nicely lately. Do you believe there's still room for upside in this tumultuous market? Well, you know, I don't like to comment on the share price. You know, I encourage investors to take a look at Silvercorp. But when you're comparing Silvercorp to our peers, what you need to remember is that Silvercorp is the low-cost producer. And in any commodity business, at the end of the day, you want to be the low-cost producer. And that's one of the key advantages you have when you're investing in a company like Silvercorp. In addition, you know, you're getting a company that has a very entrepreneurial management team and a terrific track record of success and building value for its shareholders. Lauren Waldman is the Corporate Secretary of Silvercorp Metals, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol SBM. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. The Ellis Martin Report is sponsored in part by Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty's Buck Reef Project is an advanced staged gold project currently in feasibility in Tanzania with a commercial production target approximately 30 months away. With $30 million in their treasury, the company is prepared to further explore and develop the property. The president of the Tanzanian Royalty is renowned commodities expert Jim Sinclair. Visit our website, tanzanianroyalty.com. That's Tanzanian TanzanianRoyalty.com. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55% interest in the Advanced Stage Buck Reef Gold Mine Development Project, which could see commercial production in 2014. 
previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Mr. Sinclair was a general partner and member of the executive committee of two New York stock exchange firms and the president of a commodities clearing firm, as well as Global Arbitrage, a derivative dealer in metals and currencies, and we're pleased to have him as a weekly guest on the Ellis Martin Report. Thanks for joining us today, Jim. It's a great day to be here. Now, looking back on 2011, what was the biggest event, in your opinion, affecting the financial markets, and how will this event continue to unfold in 2012? Oh, the biggest event facing the market in 2011 has been the ongoing crisis in focus of the media of the euro. The very interesting contradiction, though, is that for all of the focus and all of the problems the euro has had, it's not too far away from 130. In other words, a big to-do about nothing, as Shakespeare would say? Well, it's, it's just a very interesting point. It has to attract your attention. It's something that it's impossible to ignore. I mean, if you were long at 145, 130 would not be a pleasant place to be, or slightly under 130. But it's also very surprising with the depth of the problems and with the media and general investment house outlook that the problem is severe and not going away, that the price isn't really down at 119 or challenging the old low. If this isn't going to change in the near future, if we're not going to see those kinds of lows, then what will the media focus on next? The uh, euro becomes boring because Germany fails to be totally self-interested, as was generally predicted. It's very possible that the crisis in the euro could somewhat grind on with these can-kicking efforts that we've seen, such as creating the international swaps in order to fund the ECB in order to fund the banks in dire need of liquidity. The bear case for gold, it focuses very much on the euro and a continuing crisis in the euro being dollar positive and euro negative. And the connection that people have, I'm suggesting the connection's right all the time, but the connection people have as a knee-jerk reaction that, of course, whichever way the dollar goes, gold will have to go in the opposite direction. So is there just no disconnect ahead as far as the media is concerned or the investing concerns? Is there no decoupling in place for gold and the dollar and the euro? It could very well be, but, you know, giving respect where respect is due to Pierre Lasson, who has a feeling that gold is something of a 1500 to $1,700 adventure in 2011. One would have to assume that the basis for that would be a continuation of a slow deterioration of the euro, a continuation of a slow appreciation in the U.S. dollar without any change in media focus primarily on Europe to focus back on the U.S. dollar. If there is a bare case on gold, I've just laid it out. Well, what does that mean? If there is a bear case in gold, do we see a continued gradual contraction? In, in the first part of the question is, is there? And the key element really is the assumed modest but firm recovery in U.S. economic statistics. You know, over the balance of December, there's been feeling that the housing market is picking up and, uh, you know, the auto market has been improved but going sideways. And when it's all added up by general commentary, it's considered to be modest but continual improvement. I think that the possibility, if there is one, that there's a hole in that analysis, the bear analysis on gold, is that, in fact, the U.S. economic recovery is more a product of statistical aberration 
and the ability for anyone employed or otherwise to borrow money to buy a car, that's the only place where your subprime loans are welcomed and are thriving. And that, in fact, the U.S. recovery is ethereal, and that then puts fundamental pressure on the U.S. dollar, while Pierre Lassant's assumption that the euro kind of kicks along and continues, maybe the fact that Germany hasn't pulled out of the equation as everyone expected them to do. And the fact that the Fed has set up a QE situation, a rather unusual one, where it's the Fed that funds the ECB to do the deed, that in fact that comes into utilization. And the dollar relationship to the euro, in fact, favors the euro. It's something that nobody's looking at, something that nobody's considering, but that would be a, a firm bull case for gold, putting the U.S. dollar at a minus, let's say, a 10 to 25 percent on balance over the year could very well bring gold up into the high 2000s. It's something that nobody's really talking about, but to be understood well, first you have to always respect the other side. I mean, obviously I'm bullish on gold, and admittedly so, but if I don't listen to people who have credentials and who speak good fact and who have been relatively correct in the past, then I'm kidding myself. But out of the argument, that argument comes possibly, rather than 1,500, 1,700, 1,700, 2,100. I think what I've just reviewed with you is an approach that most people haven't put any focus on at all. And as I sit here after Christmas relaxing on a, a beautiful day before we talked today and took a nice long walk and thought very deeply about what's going on, I had a hard time getting away from the one case that nobody's giving too much credence to. And that would be a fundamental realization that the economic recovery in the U.S., does not have legs, and quite to the contrary, that there's a very strong possibility that we might experience indices at lower lows before we have any kind of a meaningful recovery here. That would be the case for 1,700, 2,100. Does that well-thought-through perception have real legs in an election year with a media that's friendly? No, in an election year, you'd expect everything possible to be done in order to benefit the statistics. But I think our listeners, and you and I talking, you wouldn't deny that everything possible to be done, in fact, has been done. I mean, when you go to QE, you are literally going to the extremes. Unemployment has been extended. Tax cuts are still in place. And I think you and I can assume that during an election year, there's very little going to be done that's going to invite inflation. But all that has been done has at best given us a modest recovery. The assumption that it's an election year, therefore economics should improve, has to be built on the foundation of the effectiveness of the tools at hand and the tools that have been used to create an improvement at this point in time. In retrospect, it's created a modest improvement, modestly, highly statistical. Unemployment's not really reversing itself. Housing market is not really reversing itself. And yes, you have to give respect to that possibility, but think for a moment if it didn't happen. Well, I almost don't know where to follow this up, Jim. To say that that's a case we should look at. It. It's a case that's not being looked at. What you're saying is not ravingly popular, but it is pure common sense based on historical precedent. And if you were a betting man, you would put money on exactly what you said, that all stops will be pulled in order to uh, create some sort of a meaningful recovery in an election year. But then you've got to step back and say, well, what have they got left they haven't done? And there's not really a whole lot there. QE3 could be might be. We'll assume that everything is, you know, Operation Twist, waste of time. Maybe a year or two or three from now it might mean something, but it has no immediate impact. 
Fiscal stimulation, it's been all monetary. I mean, the, the degree of fiscal stimulation as compared to monetary stimulation just doesn't exist. And fiscal stimulation has historically been very much a, a part of some degrees of recoveries. Experience of 1932, through most of the things they had at it, nothing really happened. There is a reasonable possibility that the one case that's not being examined, which is a negative fundamental dollar case, might be what we're going to see in this period, which is clearly a transition period. The end of 2011 through 2016, cyclically, is the last leg towards full valuation if it is to occur on the precious metal side. You know, my own feeling is gold will work its way back into a system, but, you know, that's an entirely other subject. We really just need to be vigilant in watching both the statistics that are released and also watching, you know, shadow statistics, for example. There is a constancy in uh, eliminating from the present statistical uh, equations all the changes that have taken place over the last many years. And going back to what things would have looked like in 1970, it had the same certain medic factors come in. As I say, I've been thinking about it an awful lot. I have a great respect for Pierre Lassalle. When I put Pierre's argument together, which is a 1500-1700 argument, I asked myself, what's the only thing in that argument that would have a different effect where, in fact, the euro-dollar relationship may favor the euro. They kick the can pretty good. They can possibly continue to kick the can if, in fact, the U.S. economic statistics stay as they are or become more robust. So to sum up, can we see either $1,600 gold in a year or a range between 1700 and 2100 which is still modest. I'm taking the 1700 to 2100 dollar expectation for 2012. Right. Pierre would be looking for 15 to 17. As the president of Tanzanian Royalty, how does any of this affect your leadership of the company during the next year? Both arguments on a strict analysis of potential profits as a result of an operation continue enthusiastic expansion of all the programs that you have. You'd really need a very significant drop in the price of gold because at what we call a half gram cutoff, that's where you figure out how much gold in your 43101s that you have. It's the basis for your definitive feasibility studies. The SEC requires that we use an average of the last three years in gold. So all of the figures are based on $1,024. So following the indications of the regulators, not everybody does, and you don't have to. You can speculate at different prices if you choose. But when you do your studies, they have to be done at 1024 I don't see any situation that puts 1024 into danger, no situation therefore putting the profit margin into danger. Therefore, as a business, no situation which would put the entity as a business in danger. What markets do is, is their own thing. But the question you asked is a business question. And so the projections on which we've made the investments are at a price of gold which is so conservative that there'd be no need to do the opposite, which would be to slow down and to protect. We project two years forward, and that projection, I think, is sustained by any analysis of the market now. That's a business answer to your question. Well, that's the one I wanted, actually. So, uh... And, you know, sometimes you can't let markets and the wildness of markets today and the illegitimacy of markets in the sense that they're so manipulated. Take your eye off the ball, which is that you're going to be running a plant, you're digging a hole, you're processing or and you're delivering to a marketplace. And in between, there's a thing called a profit margin. And as long as that profit margin is sound and qualifies you in terms of an internal rate of return, then the business goes forward. In fact, I honestly believe that the future of all gold shares are that they're going to go back to exactly what they were in the 1940s. They're going to become the utilities. They're going to be yielding situations, and they're going to compete on price for many reasons, of course. But a very important reason for their competition will be their willingness and capacity to pay dividends. 
Dividend paying stocks essentially are what everyone's going to be looking for during the next three, four, five years. Well, the gold fellows, you know, if they can just control the personal greed, every major producer out there could wow you with a dividend. And the argument that business has to go forward is, you know, and that you have to reinvest into the business is a simple question of resources you have. In other words, this isn't brain surgery. I mean, it's complex, believe me, to actually do it. It's, it's a hell of a complex business. But from the standpoint of understanding the important criteria of analysis, internal analysis. Pretty simple. So they can right now, if the companies would back off a little bit on the corporate jets and meetings at the country club, there isn't a producer out there that couldn't be right now giving out extraordinary dividends. I would say that the ones that have to compete, companies like ourselves, will have to consider giving dividends in kind or cash. That's what Shenley did in the 1940s. If I could divert for a minute, but still on subject. Shenley offered their stockholders either whiskey or cash. And if you chose whiskey, you got a warehouse receipt. A market actually started in the warehouse receipts because, you know, when have you ever seen the price of liquor go down? So people were actually buying and selling the warehouse receipts in the over-the-counter market. I wouldn't be surprised to see some very wise metals companies, especially some of the silver producers, recognizing that they actually might give dividends in kind, exactly the way Shenley did it. Take your choice, cash or kind. That would be pretty heavy competition, especially because it would be complex for the shorts, and the shorts certainly do live in the silver stocks. It would be very hard for the shorts to be both short the stock and short a dividend in kind. It means getting delivery. Right now, you know, the supply and the physical markets are not that thick. You can't always, physical market and the paper market are two entirely different animals. So if the junior producers, silver companies, actually took the lead in that, I think they'd find a very interesting combination of moving towards a utility and also taking care of those who buy precious metals based on the assumption that all currencies over time lose value. Interesting. In this market, do you see any of these small exploration companies, gold and silver companies, with stocks as low as 20, 10 cents a share right now that floundering along, really not doing anything, do you see them possibly falling by the wayside? Here's the difference. You're running a company that the stock price has declined sharply. You're running a company where the price has declined significantly. That's basically the two categories you have. Who's got money? Because the low price in the stock cuts off its financing. So if the hedge funds had a strategy for their shorts and the mistreatment of the stocks. The strategy would have to be focused on the fact of starving the company from finance in a capital-intensive industry. And they've done that pretty well for some of the ones, as you say, going along at 10 cents. So your question there is, yeah, they're going to go by the wayside, but the wayside is going to be somebody else. If you were managing those companies and didn't have to take the salary in order to be able to live off it, what you'd really do is put yourself on care and maintenance, meaning just shut it down. Don't take the chance of being put out of business. You've got enough money to, to take care of pumps you need if, in fact, you even have a hole open. The companies that are in the same category that fortuitously have some money will be looking to acquire. The ones that have cash flow will be the ultimate acquirers. So the market depreciates the price, but the only way you put a company like that out of business is if they can't raise any capital. So it's all a question of what's in the treasury and what do they need a month to live on, to answer your question. Yes, some will go by the wayside, but the wayside will be acquisition. Will there be any acquisitions for Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation then? Well, we've got $30 million in cash, so we don't fall into the category of not being able to finance. But I will tell you that you know my job and my duty to myself and to my stockholders is to maximize our values however I do it. And there'll be a time when you've brought your projects to full production. And that's the time you'll be looking to maximize your values. And it will depend. If you can't maximize in the marketplace, of course you sell the company. So the answer to that is the market will tell us. But, you know, fortuitously, we're capitalized through to production. So, you know, we don't have that weakness in our equation, the inability to finance. We've got the money. 
Yet you're not really a gambler. You're a conservative individual, I would say. Well, I'm a speculator as an individual, but not as a businessman. As a businessman, you could not be more conservative. Well, you couldn't wear two more different hats then, could you? No. Well, basically, I was considered to be the largest gold trader in the 1970s market. I'm certainly not in this one because of the violence in the marketplace. And, of course, you know, when you're 35, you you don't believe you could ever fail. And when you're 70, you know better. Okay? (laughs) So, yeah, I run a business on a very conservative nature. Cash is king. And cash is the only thing that will keep the gold exploration junior development junior producer from being gobbled up by somebody else. Well, Jim, as usual, I've enjoyed speaking with you today, and I wish you a wonderful new year. I look forward to speaking with you next week. And I enjoyed very much looking at both sides of the equation. I thank you for that opportunity, because if you lose respect for others' views, you're stupid. I appreciate what seems to be a really unbiased attitude about the way you conduct your speculation, your analysis, and the way you helm your company. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to discuss it. I gave my CFO his instructions. Protect our capital with your life. Okay. I've been speaking with Jim Sinclair, the president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading under the symbol TRX on the Amex. Just type in TRX. Listen to the segment again and find a link to Tanzanian Royalty's website on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.